Hey, listeners, ever have trouble getting someone on the phone when you have a question about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person any time, day, or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Did you know that it is Asian American Pacific Islanders Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Carden, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meath. Plus, you can help support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA Scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native, Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. There he is. Hey. I just can't get over seeing your hair like that. I truly, I know I was talking about it the other day, but it's quite something. It's getting uh, out of control is the appropriate word, I think. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, but I also, also kind of like it. everybody. Welcome to the podcast, Literally with Rob Lowe. Um, today, I have my former boss, Mike Schur, who co-created Parks and Recreation, who was the, uh, the ringer writer on The Office, and uh, who came up on SNL through some of the glory years there. I don't know anybody smarter, funnier, and more decent. He's like one of the true nicest guys in Hollywood. And I'm forever indebted to him for giving me Chris Traeger. There is much to discuss. I go back and forth. Like I I have a um, almost like uh, irrepressible urge to shave it all off. And I think I might. I think I might give myself a buzz cut when this is all, well, not even when this is all over, like in the next two weeks. Well, but your, your hair is usually short anyway, so I, I think it's a no-brainer. It's you got to go for it. Do it. Yeah. I know. I, I Part part of this for me is just like, let's see what will happen. Like, I'm kind of like, I've never let my hair get this long, so let's see what happens. And what happens is it's long and gray and unwieldy. So uh, I, I guess I've learned the only thing I can learn, and now I should just cut it all off. <laughs> is would, would JJ do it, or would you do it yourself? Who would you allow to do it? I think the kids this I know I understand this is crazy, but I think I might have my son do it. I was going to say, yeah, like we're in a world right now where no one has to look at me, but them and my wife and occasionally you when I do a podcast with you. So like I don't there's no vanity involved with this, right? Like by the time we're outside again, it'll have grown back into something resembling a human haircut. So I kind of want to see what happens if my 12 year old shaves my head. Is that I can't crazy? believe I can't believe you have a twelve year old now. It's amazing how fast I remember them in their trick or treat outfits at Parks and Rec yeah. when we used to do amazing Halloween days. Yeah, the first time they came, so that would have been like two thousand ten or something. What was the first year you were there? It's two thousand. I mean, it started two thousand. It's probably two thousand ten. And yeah, so William would have been two or maybe three, and Ivy would have been a baby, and now they're twelve and nine and. She's in the other room practicing her cello, and he's doing like basic algebra. It's bananas. Ugh. I mean, you, but you've got you've got post college kids now, right? Yeah, I I remember when when I was on Parks with you, vividly, like just like having Dan Gore and Yang, who, who I think helped my boys with their college entrance tests and strategies because every everybody on Parks and Rec went to Great. big fancy big fancy schools you're like you, everybody was like Harvard or Stanford or you know right pretty much yeah yeah I mean Dan went to Harvard with me we were the same year um 
and uh, who else was there? Alan Yang went to Harvard. Like there were a bunch of Harvard nerds on that staff. Aisha Muhar went to Harvard. Um, but where, so wait, your kids went to one of them went to Duke. I remember. Right? Well, I went went to Duke and then went on to Loyola Law School and just passed the bar this last. Oh, uh, he's passed the bar. Look at that. Yeah, yeah, he passed the bar, and uh, and then my youngest Johnny went to Stanford and is now on the writing staff uh, of. 911 Lone Star. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. He had worked as Ryan, uh, an assistant for Ryan Murphy and Brad Buecher on American Horror Story while he was at Stanford in the summers. And then gotcha. they offered him a job when he got out of, out of school. And then in, in a weird way, how the universe works, um, Ryan and I then teamed up to do Lone Star at the same time on a different track. I'm like, wait, we should have John Owen on the staff writing. Fantastic. For a show about a guy who has a son, right? <laughs> so so how often do you see him on the average day that you're at work? Well, we're so rarely on the lot. So we're, we're on a different location almost every day. So I don't see him a ton. But the best was when he, he wrote episode six last season. And when he had to cover set on his own script was the greatest. Because- he, I mean, it was it was surreal to have my son. It's a script he wrote. We're shooting it, and now he's coming up to me and saying, "I'm not so sure if this moment's working or whatever." <laughs> I like to believe that he just noted you to death. Just, just do it again. No, again, you're not getting it. Let's just like, <laughs> it's like a, every kid's dream. They get to micromanage their dad for an afternoon. <laughs> if, oh, for sure. But it was actually even worse because I thought the attitude was more like. Yeah, that's about all we're going to get out of my dad. So, you know, fuck it. Um, but you, on the other hand, we could, you know, let's really do, drill down on this. <laughs> that's amazing. So that's, but that's so cool. So this is his first staff job, right? Yeah, it's his first staff job. Wow. And um, he's just, he's loving it. There, now everybody's doing virtual writer's rooms. So that's a whole different thing as we're in coronavirus. So it, that's a whole different experience than being in a room with people, as you know. Yeah, it's really hard too. I don't know what he says about it, but it's like we've been doing it on a couple of shows I'm working on and it's just like there's no substitute for everybody being in a room and talking. Like you can first of all, like if there's more than 6 people on the Zoom call, half of them are just looking at their phones or like <laughs> just goofing right. off. Yeah. But yeah. but also just the the yeah, you know this, the whole creative process is like you're trapped in a room and there's a sense of like to get out of this room by the end of the day, we have to come up with good ideas. And it gives it this kind of momentum and this urgency that when you're sitting in your own home and everybody's sort of like in a little box on your computer screen, it's just not the same thing. Like I, I, amongst other things that we're all worried about, the big things, the things that actually matter, when I actually think about what we do for a living going forward, I start to get really worried about just the future of entertainment because I don't know what it looks like. Like, it's hard to imagine being in a writer's room. It's hard to imagine being on a set. Like, how do you shoot a scene with, you know, 200 extras ever? How do you go on location to someone's house? Who, who in their right mind in LA is going to let any of us into their house to shoot a scene? Like, it just, it seems so crazy to imagine going back to the old ways that we did this. I mean, we'll figure something out because we always do. Hollywood has a, has a knack for ingenuity but, you know, you know, and, and there's a long way to go with the other more important issues before we get to that point. But I'm very nervous to figure out how this works after after this is all over. I don't know if you've had the same thoughts. I, I have, but I you've raised specters that I didn't even think about. And it, it's, you know, it's like after 9-11, you know, we never traveled the same again. Never. Right. Right. And so what will what will this be like? Because it's it's not just the travel element to it. It's every, it's every element of, of what we do and, you know, and, and doing all of the, the zoom stuff that we do and making shows in our houses and stuff and going on the air and people love it. Is there a notion where people just go, Hey, you know, let's just start doing more stuff like that. And then. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right? the fear, right? The fear is that, yeah. Is that like, I mean, you know, one way or another, the media companies that pay us have, are losing billions of dollars a month. And, 
I, th- that's another thing is like, you know, the shows that we make are expensive, you know, they're not, they're not little DIY shows. They're like, they cost millions of dollars yep. an episode. And it's hard to imagine just at the level of like, what are they, how do they pay for them on the, on the other side of this? Are they going to cut every staff in half? Are they going to cut every cast in half? Are they just going to say, sorry, this is the cap on what anyone can get paid. Are they going to try to make cr- like camera crews not have assistance? Are they going to try to make, Right. You know, sorry, instead of two gaffers, you get one gaffer. Like I, uh, one way or another, the, like every aspect of the business itself and also the way that the, the creative side of it is going to be different somehow. And we, I don't know how that happens. So um, I think we're a long way away from anything resembling normalcy. But even when we get there, I don't know how you account for all of the things you need to account for. And it it's, you know, everybody looks at, everything as they should through their own prism. And, you know, we make content and we make entertainment to take people's minds off of life in the best of times and the worst of times. And you have to adjust to that. I remember when we were doing the West Wing, we were doing a show about the White House and September 11th happened. And Aaron Sorkin, like you, said, I don't know how to write the show now. I literally don't know how to write a show Overnight, I don't I don't understand the world anymore. I don't know what the rules are anymore. And I'll never forget. We were, I think, 15 days away from airing the season opener. And he told the network he needed to they wanted he wanted to pull the first episode. And he wrote the 9-11 episode, which we broke the fourth wall and talked to America and then did a story sort of on it. Then the theory was that inoculated the world against, uh, you know, the, the new realities. And then we went right back to what we were doing. But it was intense. It was, first of all, really intense because we shot that we shot that episode and we're on the air with it. And I mean, I don't even know how quick it was. It was crazy. Yeah. I mean, I was at SNL and, um, you know, the world blows up uh, uh, in New York almost literally. And it was like, well, really, what are we doing? Like the West Wing, you guys were like, all right, this show's important. We're talking about important stuff and real issues. And like, there's drama and it's about, you know, the biggest issues facing the country. As now you're putting on funny wigs and crazy makeup and doing three minute sketches. It's like, <laughs> it's ridiculous. And so there was a, we had, we had it at two levels, right? We had the basic level of like, what do we do now? And then we had the second level of like, this is what we're doing. Like we're doing <laughs> like, you know, covered with comedy sketches, but you know, um, Lauren is, as you know, is such a steady hand at the, at the tiller. Um, yep. and he, he was sort of like, look, this, the whole point of this show is it's a New York thing. This happened largely in New York. It happened in DC and Pennsylvania too, but the center of it was New York. And the way that New York moves forward and the country moves forward is this show goes back on the air. It's the, the inherent silliness of it is the thing that matters because it's like, this is a celebration of we can be stupid and be silly. And also the show deals with politics and it references real life things or whatever. So, you know, he really steered the show through that, um, through that time. Uh, and I, I was, I had just gotten the job that year. I don't know if I ever told you the story, but I had just gotten the job that year of producing weekend update. So, uh, my first, was that your first, was that your first show? (laughs) That was my first first show. Yeah. So so I took this job thinking like, this would be fun. Jimmy Fallon, Tina Fey are my friends and it'll be fun to just write some dumb jokes about the news and produce this little segment. And then, you know, kablooey. So, um, I, I remember like having conversations with a bunch of people about like, well, what do we do? Like, do we do a, do we do an opening, right? Do Jimmy and Tina say like, Hey, we're going to try to get through this. You know, um, we're going to try to do the best we can or whatever. And Lauren was like, we'll do that at the top of the show. Just do jokes, just do jokes. Like that's the point. That's what weekend update is. People tune in and they, at weekend update theme plays and then they see 12 jokes and a couple features and then they, and then they go to a commercial. Just do that. That's what, that's what we need. So we, that, you know, the way we can update works is we, you know, you sit down, the writers, there's a, their, their own, right. They have their own writing staff. It's usually two or three guys and, or ladies. And then people fax jokes in from places. And then you sit down on Thursday and on Thursday, Friday and Saturday, you sit down with these giant packs of jokes and you just read through them and you pick them. Right. So 
we were like, well, what's the first joke? Like, what is the first joke yeah. that you make after 9-11? Like, how do you do that? And there was a joke, the, 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 the Mariah Carey movie Glitter had just come out like three weeks earlier, right? Or two weeks earlier. And someone wrote a joke. I don't remember who it was. There was, um, it was like, uh, the CIA believes that Osama bin Laden may be hiding in a very dark place with very few people. And the joke was the um, we've they've started searching theaters showing the movie Glitter, <laughs> and <laughs> and it was so dumb. It was just such a dumb joke. I mean, in, in the in the best possible way, right? It's just like yeah. a dumb joke about like how Mariah Carey made a movie that bombed. And I was like, right, all right, right let's try this. And so Jimmy reads that you know we it's there's a the show has this really emotional opening, and Giuliani was there, um, and uh, and the chief of police, and all these people, and it was very somber. And Paul Simon saying the boxer. And it was very beautiful. And then they, you know, they did the show and then we get to weekend update. And I was like, I just, my heart was pounding because you could totally imagine a world where you do a joke about nine 11. And then you just are like, I'm, you're literally fired. Like your judgment was yeah. so bad that you're fired. Oh. And so Fallon, so we, they dissolve through and they go, you know, I'm Tina Fey. I'm Jimmy Fallon here. At today's top stories. And uh, Jimmy reads that joke and it like gets a laugh. Like people just laughed at it like it was any other joke. And I, the wave of, I was just flop sweating. I just remember like sweat pouring off my brow. And then he tells the joke and people laugh an appropriate amount. It's not an amazing joke, but it's a perfect for that era. It was a pretty good joke. And then they just moved on. And then we did another couple jokes about it. And then we did jokes about some dumb thing that happened in St. Louis. And we did jokes about some dumb product or whatever. And I I just remember thinking, and I feel like we're going to feel the same way here. I just remember thinking like Lauren's right. Like the way the, 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 the act of doing things like weekend update or like SNL or like any TV show or making movies or any of that stuff, the point, the, the, the point of it is the doing of it. It's like, this is a world where these things can happen. And so one way or another, even though it feels frivolous, when you look at frontline healthcare workers and you look at people volunteering to bring groceries to people who have been laid off and just all, there's all this, you know, um, all these horrifying stories. The truth is, is that like for normalcy to return, everything has to return. Everything we had before this has to come back. And one of those things is we got to make TV shows and movies again, even if they stink. So, so, um, you know, that, that's sort of what I cling to. I feel like we, you know, we do what we can. We try to raise money. We try to help out. We try to volunteer. We try to like make our neighborhoods nice and help people who need help. And then when the time comes, we go back to making TV shows so people can watch TV. And that's sort of the, you know, that's our little dumb role in this whole thing. And, and you, that was your so your first update is nine eleven, and if I'm yeah remembering correctly, you once told me that your first day of work period on SNL was the day after Farley passed away and Norm had McDonald had been fired. Is this right? <laughs> that is correct. Yes. So you I were like you were like in, the, um, you were like the jinx. You were the jinx of SNL. Basically. <laughs> You're the jinx. Essentially, yes. Yeah, I got hired be- in part because Norm was fired from Update by Don Olmeyer, who didn't like the number of OJ jokes that Norm was telling, even years after the trial was over. Norm was still hitting OJ every week, <laughs> and Olmeyer was friends with OJ, and so he fired Norm. And so Norm got fired, and and then his writers also sort of got fired. It was unclear, but they just changes were were happening, and so. I had been interviewed for the job before that year and didn't get it. And then I just got a call in classic SNL fashion. It was like, you know, Hey, uh, we're hiring you. You start Monday kind of thing. Wow. So yeah. My, and then in that, it was in that Christmas break and Farley had just passed away. So I showed up for the first show in January, 98, Samuel L. Jackson was the host. Um, Farley had just died and people were reeling from that. Norm had been fired, but was from update, but was still there. So he was like hanging around and like on the show. Oh my God, how awkward. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I know. And so Uh, I, I, the thing that I, I'm sure I said to you, I say to everybody I tell the story to is like, it was a good six months before anyone even noticed I was there. Like, I mean, talk about like, you know, SNL, like you don't, SNL is very trial by fire. Everything is like, they throw you in the deep end of the pool and see if you swim. But like, they literally, I don't think anyone knew I had been hired for six months because it was so much other stuff was going on, which was by the way, fine with me. Cause I sucked at the job for, for about six months. And then by the time anybody found out I was actually there, I was, uh, I was much better. What was the, um, what was the thing that blew you away the, the most? If you could think of one thing of like, we all were fans of SNL, we come up and then 
know, whether you're writing on it or hosting like I've done, once you get behind the scenes of that show, there's always some takeaway where you're like, holy shit, I had no idea. Did you have any of those thoughts? Oh, I had thousands of them. Um, <laughs> I mean, the first thing is, I, I, I mean, you can, as a former host, um, you can testify to this, like, Everyone who criticizes that show should go watch it get made for a week because if you watch it get made, you'll never criticize it again. It is so impressive the way it goes from, you know, the read-throughs are on Wednesday night. And so on by, at, on Wednesday at 8 p.m., nothing exists. It's an empty studio. And by Saturday at 11.30, they have made, some of the best set designers in the world have made 12, 15 sets, some of which have been, were like used in dress rehearsal and thrown away and never used again. Their costume changing is insane. People change costumes in 30 seconds. And, you know, they actually, when I was there, if you watch the show now, they've, they do this thing where they have a bumper in the, in the commercial breaks. They go to a live shot of a crane sort of pulling through the studio so that you can see like sets being assembled and costumes being thrown on people and wigs being straightened. And they started doing that just to like let people in to the fact that like this is all happening. This is really happening live and look how much of it is happening. So just the actual sort of, um, the actual construction of the show was mind blowing to me. The first sketch I ever wrote, or actually that's not even true. The first joke I ever got on the show wasn't a sketch. It was at Samuel Jackson week. My friends, Rob Carlock and Dennis McNicholas wrote this sketch. Titanic was, you know, in like week 32 of dominating the box office. And they wrote a sketch for Samuel Jackson and Tracy Morgan, which was, they were the only two black guys on the Titanic. And, <laughs> and, uh, they, they, so Will Ferrell was walking around going, all first class passengers get to the lifeboats, all second and third class passengers get to the lifeboats, all fourth through 10th class passengers <laughs> get to the lifeboats. And they, and Tracy and Samuel Jackson just kept going, like, when do we get on? And he was like, just in a second. And he was like, I'll get all the luggage. Let's get first class luggage to the lifeboats, second class <laughs> luggage. That, and so I wrote one joke that actually got into the sketch, which was Ferrell goes, uh, all empty lifeboats should now be placed into other lifeboats. <laughs> and, and then, and then, which is a pretty good joke. I'll pat myself yeah. on the back for that. So, so that's the first joke I ever got on the air, right? So we write that sketch. It was really fun. I, I was like, oh my God, I'm writing for Saturday Night Live. Um, on Friday afternoon, we went down to watch the rehearsal and they had reconstructed the Titanic on, in 8H. Like they had the, they had built this enormous deck of a ship and it was slanted so that like as if it was sinking and the detail on it was incredible. And like the, 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 you know, they just matched the move. Like the, the show has all these, all these people who are, they're basically Broadway designers. So they're the best designers in the world. They, they're the best scenic designers in the world. And every week they make incredible sets for these incredibly stupid sketches that we wrote, you know, uh, at four in the morning on Tuesday night. And I just remember thinking, like, I don't understand how anyone could have done that. Like, the, the, the mechanism to do it. You know, SNL, someone told me the, the SNL is basically the New York City subway system. Like, if you tried to make it now, you wouldn't be able to. The only reason it exists is because it started a long time ago when things like this were possible. But right. if you said right now, hey, I have an idea, a 90-minute comedy variety show with music with a different host every week, with a cast of like 16 regulars, we do live sketches and pre-tape pieces and we do it from a studio in 30 Rockefeller Center and broadcast it live. Like, forget it. That'll never happen. It would never, ever, ever happen. And so there are all these things about that show that are just, they're connected to the old age, right? To the old like Sid Caesar, Milton Berle comedy variety era yep. that is just such a thing of the past. And that's why like, when that show disappears, it will really, really be the end of an era. You know, it, it, there's just, it's the only bridge between modern TV and, and like 1950s TV that still exists and nothing will ever replace it. No, it's really, it's really, and it's, and Lauren has been the guy who's, you know, made it happen all, all of these years. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine a version of SNL without Lauren, not that he's going anywhere. He'll be there forever, but it, it, it's such a part of, and I've done so, a, a lot of the podcasts now and it's, really amazing how many people I've spoken to who are either affiliated with the show, have a history with the show. It's been around for so long that almost everybody has some sort of yeah. history of it. And, and even if you haven't, it's, it's shaped your world, particularly, I mean, if you, if you're a comedian, I mean, there's no way it isn't a big part of you in some way, always. Yo, a hundred percent. Either you were on it 
or you wanted to be on it, or at least you watched it every week, or you modeled your career after someone's career who was on it. I mean, like that run, you know what I like to do sometimes is just to feel bad about myself. (laughs) Uh, I'll go to like, um, I'll pick someone, some filmmaker or something and I'll go, um, and I'll look at like his or her IMDb page and just say like, what's the best five year run? You know, like yeah. this person, what was this person's peak? You know, yeah. like I went to look at John Hughes's IMDb page. If you're a writer and you want to feel bad about yourself, go look at John Hughes's IMDb page from the years like 82 to like 88 or something. It's like he wrote like 10 of the greatest screen comedy screenplays of all time in like seven years. And if you look at Lauren Michaels's, um, like he, the thing that obviously separates him from everybody else is just his eye for talent. He's got the best eye for talent, I would say, of any TV producer in history. If you go look at the people that he hired from the time he came back, he left and went to LA from 80 to 84 and came back and he put together that famous cast that was, you know, Phil Hartman, Dana Carvey, Dennis Miller, Lovitz, Jan Hooks, Victoria Jackson, Kevin Neal, and that whole crew. Yep. If you look at who he hired starting then and going to like 1991, it's every great comedian of that generation, like without fail. Like there's no one, there's almost no one who, who wasn't hired by Lauren Michaels. It's all of those, all, it's Chris Rock and, and David Spade and Adam Sandler and Chris Farley and Mike Myers. And like, it just like, boom, 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 one after another. He hires, you know, 25 of the greatest comedians in American history over the course of like seven years. It's really amazing. And you, like, yeah, you know, you can say whatever you want about that show, but there is nobody better at spotting talent than Lauren Michaels. And I don't think there ever will be again. I had the great pleasure of going with Lauren to the Groundlings. He, he does. He, he used to do it a, a, apparently once a year. He would come to L.A. and go to the Groundlings. I went with him once to the Groundlings and watched people. It was unbelievable to get his take on what he'd just seen and who he thought might have it and who he didn't. And walking into the groundlings with Lauren would be like walking to St. Peter's Basilica with the Pope. I mean, you can only imagine (laughs) how crazy. (laughs) Hold that thought. We'll be right back. If you're thinking about doing some home remodeling, check out Window World. Go to windowworld.com and check out their Windows Inspiration Guide. The guide is a dream book of page after page of beautiful windows. It's not just about how good they look. These beauties earned the Good Housekeeping Seal and Energy Star certification. Go to windowworld.com to schedule your free consultation. Tell them you heard about it here on Literally with me, Rob Lowe, Window World, America's exterior remodeler. Well, you know, no two travelers are exactly alike, and that means no two trips should be either. Texas, vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activity allow for such an infinite number of different travel experiences. I mean, I love Texas. I go like this, the people of Dallas, the culture of Austin, and I love any time I get there. If you're a beach person, well, you can go have fun in the sun with Texas 350 miles of coastline. If you're a rugged vacation type, there's campgrounds, hiking trails, state parks, golf is nuts there, foodies, You got your Texas barbecue and live music in Austin. And of course, if you're into the cowboy scene, you can certainly find it there. And now Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom trip matched to their own unique interests. So visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters, yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. You know the only thing I ever let interrupt my podcast? My dog. Take a minute now, please. Pet your dog while you learn about Bark, the company dedicated to making dogs happy. Every month, BarkBox designs and delivers a whole new collection of toys and treats just for your best bud. Every toy is tailored to your pup's size and play style. From squeaky plush toys from BarkBox to ultra-tough, durable ones from Super Chewer. Every treat is made with yummy, healthy, all-natural ingredients like pumpkin and sweet potato. Each box is inspired by a new theme and comes with fun surprises for you and your dog. For a limited time, they'll double your first box of goodies for free. I love making my dogs happy. Love it. It's my favorite thing in the world. 
and my dogs are obsessed with their chewable toys. BarkBox offers treats, keep my dogs healthy, and amazing new toys that keep my dogs entertained. To get your free upgrade, go to BarkBox.com slash Rob. Were you ever there when the rule was still in effect that you could not laugh? Like when I, like it was like you did not break And I remember him saying, we're not the fucking Carol Burnett show. <laughs> was, First of was, all, was, great Lauren impression. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was always like that. I think the thing that he doesn't like is when it's like you're doing it to make the audience laugh. I think that he has a genuine appreciation for when someone does something that's legitimately so funny that like it makes someone else crack. Like he doesn't want you to do it, but I don't, he wouldn't get angry at people if it were legitimately funny. Like Andy Steele, who was a longtime writer there and then later went on to run funny or die for, were for Farrell and McKay's company. He wrote a sketch that was a, a writer's favorite that he tried like 10 times and it kept not getting in and eventually got in. It was called Riding My Donkey. And it was a, ta- it was a political talk show called Riding My Donkey. And the premise was that it was like a serious political talk show. It was like, you know, I don't remember who the host, the people were, but it was like, you know, cr- you know, Chris Matthews and Sam Donaldson and whoever, but they were all like on live donkeys and the donkeys were all <laughs> tethered to a pole in the middle of this set. And it was called the Riding My Donkey Political Talk Show. And there was, there wasn't, it wasn't a metaphor for anything. It was literally just a piece of absurdist nonsense theater. And so they finally did it. Tim Meadows, Will Ferrell was the host and Tim Meadows was in it and Daryl Hammond was in it. And I can't remember who else, but like on air, the donkeys kind of went crazy. And one of them bit Tim Meadows on the leg, like nipped at him. (laughs) And. Um, and everyone was just like giggling and laughing because it was like the donkeys were like wandering out of frame and like nothing, like it was chaos. It was just like live show chaos. And Lauren wouldn't have got angry at something like that because it was like, this is part of the fun of doing a live sketch comedy show, right? It's like weird things happen. And so like, that's fine. I think he doesn't like it when it seemed like the performers were like laughing to kind of spur the audience to laugh, you know, like that's the cheap, spur the audience. that's the thing that that's the thing he doesn't like, you know? I, lo- I wish I would have seen. I, lo- I love the notion of writers having their pet like project sketches that they just keep trying to jam on and jam on and jam on. And finally, you, uh. you, they wear Lauren down and he goes, oh, we'll put it after update. We'll see if it works. Because <laughs> um, when I when I was I remember there was one of those floating around for one of the one of the shows I did. And it was and I guess they had shot it once with Christopher Walken for dress. And didn't make it. But it's when it came up in the read through, everybody's like, oh, my God, like here it comes again. And it was <laughs> the notion. The notion was um, a benevolent alien. Is landing on Earth to bring a message of peace and love. And this is his 57th try to make contact. But every time he lands, he ends up landing the spaceship on people and crushing them to death mistakenly. That's a funny idea. <laughs> and, and I just remember being in this alien space and, and it always ended with the, you know, this beautiful monologue and then, okay, drop the door. And they would drop the door. And then one of the other aliens would have to come and break the news that they've crushed a child to death. And then the alien would go, let's get out of here. And off we <laughs> in, insane. Insane. Uh, that sounds great. I had my, my version of that was called hot air balloon mystery theater. And it was an old timey like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie kind of thing uh, where they were it was a murder had happened in a hot air balloon. And then there was like a Sherlock Holmes guy who was like investigating the murder. And the joke was obviously like they were all with they were all packed into this hot air balloon. Like there was no possible way no one saw what happened. Right. And, and there were just all the jokes were just like, you know, you would have had ample time to get from that side of the basket to that side of the basket. And he's pointing, you know, <laughs> one foot away or whatever. And I, it, I just, it just made me laugh. And I tried it with like 15 different hosts and it never worked. And then one day Ian McKellen hosted and I was like, all right, it's now or never. Like if Ian McKellen oh. can't pull, can't, can't make a Sherlock Holmes character work. And so I submitted it one more time and everyone gave the same exact reaction that you just gave. 
which is like, oh, God, here we go again. But <laughs> he sold it like a maniac. And by, at that point, I think a new uh, it had been a while since I had submitted it and a whole new crop of people had come in. And um, Seth Myers was there and he did like a James Mason impression, which was really good. Oh. And then Polar was Polar was in it and she would dig, chose a, like a sort of dowager empress, sort of Dame Maggie Smith kind of a character. And it just like worked really well at the read through. And then I was like, oh my God, it's going to happen. And it, it went on, it went to dress and it did well in dress and it went on the air. And I remember being down on the stage watching it and it was like, fine. <laughs> it was like tepid, <laughs> tepid response, <laughs> you know, like, fine. like B minus, like a B minus, like a solid B minus. But to this day in my office at home, I have, there is a, a still photographer used to take pictures of every sketch. And I was like, can I please have a picture of that? So I have a picture of Ian McKellen in full Sherlock Holmes gear and everything. And it just, it really makes me happy. But yeah, every, I mean, every writer who works there for longer than a year has his or her own like favorite sketches that like never got on the air and they resubmit them once a year and just pray for the best. When you met Polar, did you know, like what, do you remember the first time you met Amy and, and could you have ever foreseen all the magic to come? So I met her. I didn't meet her. I first saw her in New York. There used to be a comedy show, week comedy show. The guys who did the state did a comedy show um, at Fez, which was a club on the Lower East Side every Saturday. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, no, it was Thursday or something. I can't remember. But someone was like, hey, let's go to this comedy show. This is before I was on SNL. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. So we go to this comedy show and it's like Michael Ian Black and, and, um, you know, all those, all those guys, David Wayne. And they came out and they were like, um, Hey, before we, uh, start the show, we have a group here has a quick announcement. We're just going to give the stage to them. And Amy Poehler walked on the stage. Now I didn't know who she was. I'd never seen her before. And she started doing this thing where she was like, hi, my name is, you know, Carol Johnson. I'm from the, um, the New York university research department. And we're just, we have a new project we're working on now. Everybody else in the room knew that this was a bit, except me. Um, I didn't, I thought it was real. I thought she was just a person from NYU or whatever she was pretending to be, who was like doing some kind of research thing. And she was so uh, natural and realistic that it was like a good two minutes before I realized that this was actually, that the comedy show had started and this was a comedy bit in the comedy show. And eventually, so I can't remember what the bit was, but she called, she was like, she invited someone and she was like, I need a, a volunteer. And then Matt Besser, who was, you know, co-founded UCB with her came up and then, and then they started doing whatever dumb bit it was. I think in my memory, the bit was like, he couldn't stop talking like Bill Cosby or something like that. I, this is <laughs> long before the revelations about Bill Cosby came to light. This is 1998 or something, 1997. But anyway, the point was, I remember leaving and there were so many funny people who performed that night. I just remember leaving and thinking like that woman who did that thing was so natural and so real. I can't believe like I didn't know that she was even doing com- she was doing comedy without me even being able to realize she was doing comedy. Like that's an incredible skill. So then I get on SNL and she like every by then a, a year goes by and I re- and I tell people this story and they're like, "Yeah, Amy Poehler. Like everybody knows who Amy Poehler is, dummy." Like Amy Amy was legendary in New York long before she got on SNL. Everybody knew that she was the she you know, she had co-founded UCB and in the comedy world she was as big as anybody who was on SNL at the time. So then she you know, they they get her on the show in 2001. The 9/11 show was actually her first show too, crazily. Mm, um wow. So, so she gets on the show and we just became friends and I had her, you know, she did a bunch of stuff on weekend updates. She would play different characters. She played Avril Lavigne and in a weekend update feature once just being Avril Lavigne. And it delighted me so much. This is not a joke. I sent her flowers after it was over. Like I, the, after on Sunday morning, I woke up and I was so delighted by her performance. I just like called a florist and said, like, please send flowers that say thank you for being Avril Lavigne on update. So I, I was just in awe of her. And so, you know, I left in 04 and she stayed and I came out to LA and worked on The Office with Greg Daniels. And then when he wanted to develop a show with me and we were thinking like, well, who do we build the show around? You know, Steve Carell was such an important, the most important part of, of the reason The Office worked is they just built it around a generational talent. And I was like, the person to do it around is Polar. Like, uh, there's just no one better. Like, and at the time, she was, um, she was probably in her last season. It wasn't sure, but she was also pregnant. 
and Parks and Rec was supposed to um, debut the pilot. It was a 13 episode order. The pilot was going to air after the Super Bowl. It was going to be the, the Super Bowl, then the office, and then Parks and Rec was going to launch that night, you know, to t- whatever, 28 million viewers. But Polar was pregnant and she was due to give birth literally the week we would have started shooting the pilot. And so it was like, well, mm. oh, well, I guess we can't have her in it. And then we, Greg and I kept developing the show and I was, we kept just having this feeling of like, who else though? Like who else can do this? Like I, we just don't know anybody else. We can look, but I don't think we're going to beat Amy Poehler. So Greg and I made what at the time seemed like an insane decision, which was <laughs> instead of giving us 13 episodes guaranteed the pilot airing after the Super Bowl, we will voluntarily cut our order to six Ugh. and debut three months later. Yeah. Wow. Oh Believe my me. God. So, and we just kept feeling like getting, like debuting after the Super Bowl is a short term thing. It's like that's a short term fix. Getting Amy Poehler in your show is the long term solution. And we would rather have Poehler in the show and only get six guaranteed episodes and debut in March or whatever than we would debut after the Super Bowl with someone we don't think is, is as good. So we voluntarily cut our own order from 13 to six. We didn't debut on the, uh, on January whatever. We debuted in March whatever. And, you know, hung on by a thread because we, you know, the cast was, as Greg is fond of saying, the cast on that show was great before the writing was great. And we eventually figured it out. We got, we hung on by the skin of our teeth. We got picked up for season two. And then the show kind of started to take on and take off after that. But it was a really risky thing to do. But I was such a believer in her and I continue to be, um, but I just, I was just like, there's nobody else who can do this character. There's no one else I want to do it with. And so, yeah, it was a roll of the dice, but it paid off. Wait, that cast is so extraordinary. And, and, I, and I, I could be putting words in your mouth, but so correct me if I'm wrong. But I think you're, one of your great gifts in putting people on the screen is you kind of hone into something that's in their essence and then like kind of ex- like add water and nutrients to it. <laughs> Rob, that is literally what I do. <laughs> that, is, that is literally. <laughs> yeah, and the reason I know that is because when I wrapped, you, you sent me, I, I, I have it framed in my office. It's so lovely, is your original notes from our first meeting together. And oh, yes, right. And, and you have, and, and there it says, says literally all the time. Like you wrote that in the very first. <laughs> moment that you and I met. Yeah. Well, that is the key uh, to me, at least in uh, to like, I look, I think um, I'm in awe of actors. Um, I don't, uh, I don't know how to act. I know I, I used to act in high school and college and I wasn't very good at it. And, and I am really in awe of performers as uh, in terms of just being able to like summon up whatever they need to summon up while in like a costume and makeup and there's people standing four inches away from them, shoving a boom mic in their face and there's cameras and there's distractions everywhere. And it's so artificial. And I think, I think good acting is the most impressive skill that exists in the world. I really do. I don't, cause really? I, I watch wow. it happen. Yes. I, I honestly do. I, and I think, you know, there's a, a lot of writers are very um, cynical about acting or they're very eye rolly about acting. Um, in fact, a lot of actors are that way too. A lot of actors like to go like, it's dumb. I stand here. I, they, someone tells me to stand there and I stand there and I say the words. It's all uh, nonsense because I, to be able to summon emotion on cue and to, and to deliver comedy literally on cue I think it's just in, in the most impressive thing in the world. And my sort of solution for how to bridge writing and acting is to say like, well, I'm going to try to make it as easy for these people as possible, right? Like I'm going to say, you know, here's my design of the character. And it's, this isn't, I'm not chiseling this in stone. This isn't a poem that's going to be, you know, uh, uh, written down on parchment and put into the Smithsonian. This is just an idea for what the character is like. And then I'll meet the actor and I'll say like, all right, well, how are you like this character that I've designed in my head and how are you different and how might I change my conception of the character to make it easier and more comfortable for the actor to, to play it? And so, you know, if that, you know, Parks and Rec is a perfect example of this because 
every one of those characters blended some aspect of the real person into the character. And by the way, I'm, I don't think I'm the first person to invent this. Like, I'm not, this isn't like, right, right. I'm not trying to take credit for this, for this thing. Um, <laughs> But, but like, you know, you're like, when I met, um, Nick Offerman, you know, we had an idea for, for Ron Swanson that was very, um, not very different. It was a little different from what it ended up being. Originally he was, he was like corrupt. That character was like, um, on the take from like the private sector and was like steering government contracts to companies and stuff like that. But that was just like, that was just our idea because I was in the news a lot because the financial crisis had just happened and there were all these tales of corruption and Wall Street stealing money and whatever. And then we met Nick and I was like, well, that's not this guy at all. This guy is the most, like this guy has more integrity in his pinky finger than the rest of America has in its collective uh, body. And so we just altered the character to be more like him. And that some of that was basic stuff like this guy woodworks like Nick woodworks or this guy plays the saxophone because Nick plays the saxophone. But really, it was more the more important work was in the sort of like how do you how are how are you presented to the audience like how you know um, how are you like how did what's his vibe uh, in in terms of how his character comes across and when I met you that was I mean this it was one of the easiest writing assignments of my life because I was like well I know how to write this guy <laughs> this guy is just the most like positive optimistic like excited, like upbeat, healthy person I've ever met in my life. And, and so I, yeah, I took those notes and I was just like, yeah, no, I get. And, you know, at the time we were, Adam Scott was also joining the cast. And it, what was amazing about it was like how easy it was to pair you up. Cause I was like, well, they have to be, they're a comedy team. Right. And so comedy teams are like Laurel and Hardy. One of them's tall and skinny and one of them's short and fat. So what's, what do I do here? And it was like, well, I already had an idea for for Adam's character, which um, which was this guy who had been elected, one of those stories of he had been elected the mayor of his hometown when he was 18, and it was a disaster. You always hear about those stories of like, oh, an 18-year-old mayor. You never hear about how badly the town was managed by the 18-year-old moron. It's one of, the, it's one of my favorite It's story. one of my favorite Parks and Rec stories. There's so many, of, but that's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's one, it's a, it's a, in fact, the reason I had that idea was that was one of the original ideas for Leslie Nope. One of the very, very first ideas Greg and I had for Leslie Nope was she was that person. Yeah. And then we, we moved away from it, but I always kept that in the back of my head as like, this is a good backstory for a character, right? So we already had that for Adam. And then I was like, well, if we're adding Robin in the mix, now I get exactly what this is because he's the 18 year old mayor Wunderkind who turned, whose life was uh, turned into a disaster. And he's been slowly trying to make up for it every day by just being like austere and responsible and kind of like head down and like no nonsense because he was such a goofball disaster as a kid. And then here comes Chris Traeger, who's all light and happiness and upbeat and shiny and everything's going to be great and positive and clapping and cheering people on. And they're a comedy team because you come in and you make everybody feel great. And then you walk out the door and then Ben takes out a machete and just hacks everything to pieces. <laughs> so it just, it was a, it was a true miracle because it was the two perfect actors in the two perfect roles at the perfect time. And you guys just fit together so neatly that it, I mean, it really was like, so uh, um, it took so little time to figure out how to make that work compared to other, you know, examples that I could cite in the history of my own writing career. It was just, yeah, I was like, okay, I got this. Here's what this is. Boom, 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 That's boom. Amazing. And you hit That's the ground amazing. running. Yeah. I mean, like if you look back at that first episode, it's in that first scene where you come in and you're pointing at everyone and smiling at them and they're all like getting googly eyed and it, <laughs> Leslie has a talking head where she says that looking at you is like staring into the sun and, you know, and then you leave and Ben immediately takes them into the conference room and starts like slashing the budget. It was all, it just all laid out very, very wonderfully and easily. It was, it was a, uh, it was a joy. I remember for, for me, there are two moments where I felt like, okay, I understood what, you know, you just, where you get your, your sea legs. Right. And sure. It, it was um, the big, concert with Freddie spaghetti <laughs> right <laughs> and i'm there's 200 extras i'm not in i have no dialogue in the scene nothing i'm just there i'm literally an extra correct and the, the cameras on parks and rec you never knew where they were a lot of times they were just wandering and right so I, I didn't ever know i didn't even know if i was on camera but leslie was giving a speech and and the speech was meant to bomb 
that was the, that was the point of the speech that, that she, she could not win the audience over no matter what she said. So Leslie started in the first big applause line where there was none. Chris Traeger, because he loves everybody and everything, started whooping and going crazy and thinking it was the greatest thing he'd ever heard. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's who this guy is. He's positive no matter what. There's one detail you have wrong in my memory, which is what she was actually doing was singing, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And she that sang the first line and nobody... Yes, and then nobody clapped. That's and then right. You're one right. solitary person way over in the distance, you did that. And that wasn't scripted. That was just like you figuring out what the character was. He was the guy who's like, I know this song. I know what to do. I'll clap my hands. It doesn't matter if any nobody else is, because that's what the you know. And I remember going into um going into the edit bay and Dean Holland was editing the episode, I'm pretty sure. And uh, he goes, Hey, come here, come here, come here. And I go, What? And he goes, Look what Rob just did. And he played that take because there were a couple takes before that where you where you hadn't done that. All the cameras were on Leslie. And then when it switched and they got wider, he goes, look, look what Rob just did. And the camera like you clapped and then the camera like crashed into you because like you said, the 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 operators on Parks and Rec, like on the office, were basically empowered to sort of shoot whatever's happening like that. You know, there's some direction like these people are going to stand here. These people are going to stand here. But like be a documentarian, like shoot the action, shoot whatever is interesting. And so you did that and they, the camera found you and crashed into you and you have, and you're way in the distance, but you can see there's a giant smile on your face and you're really in the scene and you clap twice. And I was like, Oh my God, that's amazing. Put that in. And like, that is, that's a perfect sort of defining moment for that character is like, he's the guy who, it doesn't matter if nobody else is going to do that. You're going to do that. Chris Drake. He loves that. that. He loves that song. It's his favorite song. That is literally... Yeah, it's a great song. It's the first song he ever learned. <laughs> and he's never forgotten it's it. It's literally his favorite song, and so is every other song he's ever heard. <laughs> it, it, that's exactly right. And we'll be right back after this. So I came home to a little gift in my bathroom the other day from our friends at Harry's. To get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. You know who challenged the status quo? Harry's. They saw customers getting ripped off by questionable products in the shaving industry and decided they had something better to offer. So instead of charging the same old ridiculous prices, Harry's found a way to make their beautifully designed razors, and they are beautiful, for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. Exceptional products, honest prices. That's Harry's. They have the highest customer satisfaction in shaving history and a no-risk trial. Don't like your shave? No worries. It's on them. Convenient subscription options that you can cancel at any time. And Harry's also has other self-care products that meet the same quality standards as their razors. Richly lathering, skin-softening body wash and scents like Redwood, Wildland, and Stone. And an extra high-quality, amazing-smelling deodorant for just five bucks. I love their stuff. I'm so impressed by Harry's products. All of it. It's all good. Don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash Rob. That's harrys.com slash Rob for a $3 trial set. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you've been listening to Literally long enough, you'll know that I am a big believer in getting the help you need. Therapy has been a big, big, big part of my life and something I think we should be all doing as needed, just like checking the oil on your car. I've spoken about this, and we all carry around different stressors, big and small. We keep them bottled in, and it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to get the things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Rob Lowe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Rob Lowe. I love fast cars, but there aren't a ton of high-performance TVs. They're certainly out here there. But when I when I get a chance to get behind the wheel of one, it's I love it. 
And I was blown away by the Kia EV6 GT. When you get behind the wheel of the Kia, it, it is literally like being in a state-of-the-art rocket ship, but also comfortable. The thing goes from zero to 60 in 3.4 seconds. It is the premium driving experience. And of course, it's an EV. So the climate thanks you. SiriusXM provides access to over 165 channels in the vehicle. Music, sports, news, comedy, yacht rock. Let's go. Little little steely Dan going in your Kia. Come on now. So check it out today. It is the all-electric Kia EV6 GT. I had a blast checking it out. Believe me, you should do it yourself via kia.com slash EV6. To learn more, that is kia.com slash EV6. Kia, movement that inspires. And the, the other one I remember very vividly was, because, um, you know, as you know, we would do the fun runs after right. the great writing. We would do, then we would just do whatever came to our minds. And that was such an amazing freedom. I'd never had anything like that, never seen anything like that. And a lot of the times it was just a great, it was valuable for a number of things. One, just to blow off steam, camaraderie, keep your chops up. You know, I, I very few of that ever, I think, made it into the show. But every once in a while, you would get, you have connectivity problems from Pratt, I believe, was a fun run. <laughs> right. yeah, it was. Because <laughs> um, I was there for that. Yeah, Leslie has it. the flu. And, uh, and Norm Hiscock, who was on the set, said to Pratt, like he, he was sitting at, Ron, at April's desk because April had the flu. And Norm Hiscock said to Pratt, well, they're walking right past you, so say whatever you want to. So they walk past and, and Pratt goes, uh, hey, Leslie, I typed your symptoms into the thing up here and it says you might have network connectivity problems. And I've said this many times before, it's a better joke than I've ever written. I've never written a joke that good in my life. It is a, it is a, a truly amazing joke by that uh, actor and that character. I, I, I thought it was, I remember just laughing out loud. That was the same episode where, where somehow it occurred to me to look in the mirror and say, stop pooping. Yes, another amazing moment, like a, a non-scripted moment, right? That wasn't in the, I don't believe that was in the script. I believe it, that was just you uh, staring into the into the mirror and saying, stop pooping at yourself. Well, you know, Mike, <laughs> magical things happen when I look in a mirror. I mean, I think we all know that now. Um, we should have made every uh, episode be you staring into a mirror. It would have been amazing. <laughs> I mean, and, and you know, the other thing that's great about the show is, is you have all these stars and, and it's true. Everybody on that show, it's like the 19, well, you, listen, I, I don't use this reference because I feel it very dated, but I use it for you because I know you're an aficionado. It's the 27 Yankees. Right. Um, yeah. It's a murderer's that, row. That, that row is, is a murderer's row. And you guys were so great about giving everybody the ball. Everybody felt like a, like that they were valued and. Everybody got serviced and everybody got to go off and do all their stuff in their other lives that they wanted to do, whether it was Aziz's tours or Nick's tours, the books or the movies or what have you. And it was like, I've been on shows where that just wasn't, people were not going to do that. And, and you guys yeah. were really great about that. I mean, well, that was always my theory was, was like, you know, in the TV shows and networks and studios can get really jealous of people's time. And that, you know, the old system was like, you know, you were on Magnum PI and CBS wanted you to be like the only place you can see this person is on Magnum PI on CBS. Right. It was like, that was it. And already, so they wouldn't let you go do anything else. They wouldn't let you be another a guest star. Or maybe they would let you be on one episode or whatever. Even when Parks and Rec was on, we were in the early days of this, but like you could feel which way the wind was blowing. People were doing a million things. There were more, you know, limited series and there were shows on, you know, there were eight episodes or 10 episodes. Now it's everywhere. But even at the time that was sort of happening. And I was just sort of like, well, what, who cares? Like, let it'll, everyone will be so much happier if they can go do this stuff. If Aziz can do stand up tours and, you know, you were on two shows for a while, right? You were still on Brothers and Sisters for a while when you were at the beginning of Parks and Rec. I was and on three. I was on three. I was on, I was on Californication. I was right, on Brothers right, and Sisters right. and Parks and Rec. Right. Yeah. And, 
Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. But like, you know, Pratt, I remember in, in and when season five, I guess, was ending, um, Pratt gets this opportunity to be in a movie. And we didn't know whether we were coming back. Like we didn't, we hadn't gotten picked up yet. And so his agent and manager called us and we're like, look, he has this incredible opportunity. Yeah. And I was like, well, what, what's the movie? And they were like, it's a Marvel movie. And I was like, oh my God, that's incredible. And they're like, it's called Guardians of the Galaxy and it has a talking raccoon in it. And I remember thinking like, all right, man, good luck. <laughs> like, if you want to do the talking <laughs> raccoon movie, look, I'm not going to stop you. But the point was he would have had to miss, you know, um, eight episodes or 10 episodes of the show. But also we hadn't been picked up yet for the next season. So I was like, well, what's the, what's the right thing to do here? Like I could say no, we could all say no. And then if the show gets canceled, we've screwed up Pratt's career, assuming the talking raccoon movie is good, which at the time it was like, there's no way this is going to be good, but whatever we've denied him that uh, opportunity. And also, and so we've pissed him off and also uh, our show got canceled anyway. So what difference does it make? So I was like, you know what? Great. Go do the Talking Raccoon movie, man. Good luck. Do the Talking Raccoon movie. We'll figure it out. And then I was like, well, wait a second. Where is it shooting? And they were like, it's shooting in London. And I was like, okay, hold on now. (laughs) Because now Mm. we, if we play this right, we could go shoot in London and use and say like, look, Pratt's there. And we could do something really big and bold and go to London for our premiere, which was sounded super fun. And so we worked it out. Morgan Sackett, who is the producer of the show, who is the best TV producer in the world, figured out a way for us yep. to do it and spend less money than we would have if we had shot two episodes in L.A., which is crazy. It's amazing. Um, we flew to London. We did that. We, we, you know, we got Pratt off and running. Um, we did, so we had our two-episode premiere in London. While we were there, we snuck across to France and shot a thing for the 100th episode, which was 10 episodes later, where Leslie and Ben went to Paris for the day. We did that, like, total guerrilla style, one camera, like, local local sound crew, the whole thing. And Pratt got to do the Talking Raccoon movie, which turned out to be, like, the seventh most profitable movie in the history of America and launched him into being the biggest movie star in America. And the point of all of this is just to say, like, Everybody wins when, when people can do things they want to do. Like TV doesn't, shouldn't be a thing that where people feel like they have to be doing it. It should feel like a thing that they want to be doing. And the way to make people want to do it is if they feel like it doesn't, it's not holding them back from doing whatever else they want to do. So anytime we could, we let people, you know, we let, uh, sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes it just doesn't line up. But anytime we could, we let people go do other things and, you know, explore other options and do a movie here and do a t- tour, whatever. And I, I just, it's just basic. Um, I think it's just basic consideration or human decency to try to make those things work if you possibly can. And by the way, the last thing I'll say is that when you have a, a roster, when you have the 27 Yankees, it helps, right? Like on the 27 Yankees, if, you know, if Lou Gehrig missed a game, uh, with an injury, it, they were still going to be fine. <laughs> so it's like they still got yeah. Ruth and right. Tony Lazeri or whatever. So, so I, I remember thinking at the time too, like, man, I hate to lose Pratt for a bunch of episodes, but like, okay, guess what? We have, um, we have Aziz and we have Rob and we have Adam Scott and we have Aubrey Plaza and we have Retta and we have Jim O'Hare. Like that just means like there's a little more, there's a, there's 18 to 24 more minutes of time that they'll be in over the course of six, eight episodes than there would have been. And that's not a bad thing like those. So we, you know, during that time we wrote a couple more episodes that were people like Retta got a chance to have a slightly bigger storyline because we just had more room. What a cast. Michael, this, uh, this was amazing. Thank you. You, this was everything I thought. And we didn't even cover off my office stuff that I wanted. So that'll be the next time we talk. I want to hear. Great. Well, you Great. can see I'm I'm growing the Moe's beard. I don't know if you can tell, oh. but I, I'm growing back the beard. I want to see. I w- I wanted to see that show so badly. The the Dwight Schrute Farm Moe's. Uh, oh, Schrute Farms, yeah. <laughs> Schrute Farms. I like when you did. Was you were your character Moe's ran? I, I just remember vividly you guys you running around a lot. You like to run. Yes. Yes. I mean, the writers when they put me in the show would the it was like a game of like how what can we do that's the most humiliating for Mike that was essentially oh. the challenge that they gave themselves and so they would make me run for like a mile or they would make me um ride a motorcycle across the roofs of cars as a stunt or they would make me 
bouncing on a trampoline with my shirt or on a seesaw with my shirt off. I mean, there was like, it was, it was just a ritualistic humiliation. So yeah, whatever memory you have of me from that show, if you have one, it's, it's me doing something humiliating. That's pretty safe. 100%. By the way, (laughs) it's, it's, I'm bringing back a little bit of post-traumatic, post-traumatic stress disorder that I've suppressed. You had, you did make me sing, take me out to the ball game badly. You did make me, <laughs> yes. you make me dance terribly, but it's probably actually me just, dan- I th- probably thought I was dancing great, but I think we used to have some fun with old Traeger <laughs> in that way, don't you think? Yeah, it was, but that wasn't, that was it for a different reason, right? That was to show like, this guy is never, he has no um, self-consciousness. He's just a happy person. He's a positive person. So he's at a club, he's going to dance and he doesn't really care what he looks like if he dances, he's just going to dance and have a good time. And so it wasn't, it wasn't, the point was never to humiliate you, Rob Lowe. Whereas the, on The Office, the point was most certainly to humiliate me, Mike Shore. <laughs> you had it coming, kid. <laughs> you had it that coming. Was fun. Um, thank you. Thanks for coming on board my little spaceship today. I really, really appreciate it. Sure. That was fun. What I really liked uh, about that was just being reminded, A, I love Mike Schur. He's just, he's so just decent and smart and thoughtful, but he's hilarious. And I, I really like that we got to do a, a deep dive into comedy nerd history. That was fantastic. But I love I loved the whole thing. He was a great guest and I'm glad he was here, but I'm more glad that you were here. So hopefully you'll come back for the next podcast. And thanks for listening. You have been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe. Produced by Devin Tory Bryant and Delina Terman. Engineered by me, Devin Tory Bryant. Executive produced by Rob Lowe for Low Profile. Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco. And Colin Anderson and Chris Bannon at Stitcher. The supervising producer is Aaron Blaird. Talent producer, Jennifer Samples. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.